So good morning. Good morning. I want to thank you for coming out in this weather. <laughs> it really is my pleasure to be here with you today, and I appreciate uh, my time with Carol and having the opportunity to go to the Fire and Ice program last night. We had a good time. So let's try something different today. How many of you are familiar with the Poet Snap? Yeah? Okay, if you're not, it's easy to do. <laughs> and if you hear something that resonates for you today, just let me know with the snap, okay? How strong is our faith? Perhaps the strength of Unitarian Universalism can be measured in the true transformative power of our principles. We all come together because we believe and we hold dearly the seven principles. And momentum is growing around the country for the inclusion of an eighth principle. And it states, we covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by building a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. The words we covenant to affirm are important because we understand ourselves to be a covenantal faith community. Covenants can change culture. They hold the potential to transform relationships, communities, and institutions. I developed a deep awareness of this in 2009 while on a spiritual pilgrimage to Africa with Reverend Bill Sinkford, who was the president of our association from 2001 to 2009. The pilgrimage took us to six different African countries, and we worshipped with Unitarians in four of those six countries. Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, and South Africa. In Cape Town, South Africa, we were serendipitously invited to attend uh, a presentation by the current Archbishop, Taibo Magoba, as he spoke of covenants and his hopes and visions for South Africa and for humanity. And he says, these are his words, in covenants, people bind themselves together in pledges of faithfulness and loyalty to promote mutual well-being. His vision included a framework by the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, which reimagines moving from contractual to covenantal democracy, something that we could use a whole lot more of today. Yeah. And he goes on to say, and these are their words, and I, I, I bring them because they were so powerful. Contracts concern our interest, while covenants concern our identities. Contracts deal with transactions. Covenants deal in relationships. Contracts benefit, while covenants transform Contracts are about competition, while covenants are about 
cooperation. If you win, I also win. End of quotation. So the eighth principle is our proposal to be in covenant with the beloved community. It provides Unitarian Universalists with an unmistakable articulation of the spiritual value of the human family whole and reconciled. The multicultural beloved community would no longer be just implied as it currently is in the seven principles, but it would be explicitly stated as part of our spiritual journey. And with all eight principles, we are saying to each other and we are saying to the world, this is who we are. These are our core values. And then, once we hold this eighth principle as part of our core, then there are some things that we too need to reconcile. We need to ask, how do we learn to see and restructure the culture that was built on a history of racism and oppression. The eighth principle will help us to reconcile our unfinished business of undoing racism and oppression. We introduced this principle nationally last June, and it received overwhelming support by the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly in New Orleans to be considered for adoption. The current seven principles were adopted by our General Assembly in 1985, and women are credited with starting the process that transformed the language. Go ahead, that's good. <laughs> it transformed the language and understanding of Unitarian Universalist guiding documents from being male dominant to being inclusive of women. I believe if the principles had been written with the depth of understanding that we have gained since 1985, that we would have gone further than to focus on just being inclusive of women, and we would have been much more explicit about the beloved community. And we as an association of congregations would be further along in building Dr. Martin Luther King's vision. The principles were adopted in 1985, and 12 years later, the General Assembly passed a resolution to become an anti-racist institution. That was in 1997. The resolution is called The Journey Toward Wholeness. And we've done a lot of work since then, we started doing anti-racism trainings. Your congregation, I'm sure, has been engaged in some of that so that we could equip people to change systems. In my home congregation of All Souls Church in Washington, D.C., of more than 1,000 members, we have a goal of getting 50% of the membership through Jubilee anti-racism training. This includes ministers, boards, and staff. And we've been training for a long people, we just, for a long time. We just had a Jubilee training a couple of weeks ago, and, and we do now about two or three of them a year. We've been training people for a long time because we know that it transforms them. And this is the kind of feedback that we get, and I want to quote directly. 
The Jubilee anti-racism training truly changed my life, how I see the world and who I am as a human being. I did not expect to be transformed by Jubilee, but that is exactly what happened. Within my upbringing in a white family, in a largely white community, I was unconsciously, perhaps consciously, taught not to connect with people of color in a deep, authentic, emotional way. Ever since the Jubilee training, my heart is engaged, and I cannot stand by silently as I once did. I now believe that my upbringing and lack of deep, authentic connection with people of color is intentional, and that it rendered me silent to racism's unforgivable harms to people of color and to all of us. Were it not for Jubilee, I would not have seen this truth in the world around me, and I would have done nothing to stop it. As importantly, I would not have worked to heal the effects of racism on my own spirit, and would not have reached out to people of color as my brothers and sisters in the struggle. I would not have sought the beloved community that is now an essential part of my own spiritual growth as a human being. End of quotation. So if that's not transformation, I don't know what is. 2017 marked the 20th anniversary since the passage of the anti-racist resolution. And I would say that we have learned more since uh, we passed that resolution in 1997 than we had learned about inclusion all of the years before. Now, no one has been able to challenge me or prove that as wrong. The institution set out to give people the tools to dismantle racism and to stay at the table, especially when the going gets tough. And there are enough people who have done this work now that they were able to call our own association to examine the ways that that the institution is perpetuating and or addressing racism. So this has been a challenging time for our country, yes. And our association has had its own challenging times recently. Challenging times don't affect everyone, and certainly not everyone in the same way. Historic structures of inequity cushion some people and objectify or marginalize and harm others. And as I say that, just the vision of what has happened in Puerto Rico is just so fresh in my mind, you know? Natural disasters happen, but the lack of response is a choice. So I want to speak to some of our association's challenges. In the past few years, we reorganized from all of our congregations being divided into 20 districts around the country, consolidating them into just five regions. Each region has a regional leader. So last year, one regional leader retired. He was a white male. And another white male was selected to replace him, although a woman of color was also qualified for the position. Now, the man who was selected does not live in the region that he would have served. The woman does, and she has worked there as a religious professional for 10 years. 
But she was told that they were looking for the right fit. All five of the regional leaders would have been white, and people began to speak up about the lack of diversity in hiring. Many people in the community demanded that the institution examine how systems that support white supremacy and white privilege still operate in Unitarian Universalism. There's a lot more to the story. I don't have time. Much of it is on the web. If you want to read, you probably have heard some of it. And I'm sure that you all know that the president of the association at that time, Reverend Peter Morales, resigned his post. In response to these events, a small group of religious educators called on congregations to do a teach-in on white supremacy. I understand your congregation has conducted two of those teach-ins. Around the country, about 700 of our Unitarian Universalist congregations took part. Now, white supremacy is difficult to talk about. But I want you to think about it beyond individual bigotry. We, all, we know what that looks like when we see it. But think about white supremacy as a system of social, political, and economic control. It's control that hurts all of us. White supremacy is about who has the power to make decisions and policies and resources and other things about the decisions about policies and resources and other things that impact our lives on a daily basis. And if those decisions are not are being made without a set of values that respect people and are inclusive, then they very well can be, and we're seeing that more and more, they can be very damaging. The language of white supremacy makes some people uncomfortable. But it's easy to get stuck in a counterproductive debate about language and about methods and to lose sight of the real work that must be done. Our inability to talk about white supremacy is eroding the fiber of democracy and democratic living in this country. To be unaware or silent while structures of racism and oppression are used to disenfranchise and harm people goes against Unitarian Universalist principles. Now I want to quote from the Skinner House book publication, Soul Work, Anti-Racist Theologies and and Dialogue. The theologian, Reverend James Cone, in the first chapter says, Talking about how to destroy white supremacy is a daily task, and not just for consultants and conferences. If we talk about white supremacy only at special occasions set aside for that, the problem will never be solved. People of color do not have the luxury of just dealing with racism in church meetings. If that were the case, it wouldn't be so bad. (laughs) Not a day goes by that blacks don't have to deal with white supremacy. It is found everywhere, in the churches and schools and seminaries, at publishing houses, in government, and all around the world. There is no escape. 
If whites get tired of talking about race, just imagine how people of color feel. End of quotation. So in in addition to Reverend Morales' resignation, two of his top managers resigned, and both are white men. Our national board made the decision to do something innovative. They appointed a three-person co-president transition team. All three were people of color. They restored my hope. The co-presidents were Dr. Leon Spencer, Reverend Sophia Bentoncourt, and Reverend Bill Sinkford. They ministered to a hurting association, and they served us extremely well. Last June at the General Assembly in New Orleans, Reverend Susan Frederick Gray became the first elected woman to serve as president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. I have confidence in her leadership, and she has a mandate to continue supporting us in removing the barriers to inclusion. Our efforts to remove the barriers will have huge implications in our churches, our communities, and on the democratic process in this country. There's an Estonian proverb that says, the work will teach you how to do it. The work will teach you how to do it. Folks, we must do the work. Don't have to be ready. We just have to be doing, right? (laughs) If we fully bring our first principle together with the last, not the last, no, no longer, bring the first together with the seventh, then we're talking about bringing the belief in the inherent worth and dignity of every person together with respect for the interconnected web of all existence of which we are a part. If we fully practice that, then we would be building healthy communities and environments, right? And we wouldn't think of healthy communities without considering the well-being of mothers and children. So it's February, Black History Month. We're making history all the time. I'm looking for you all to help us to remake some of the history that we need. Last spring, I met a woman named Mary Hooks. Mary is a phenomenal woman. She's African-American. She's a mother and an organizer. Mary made history. In early March, she got the idea to bring black mothers home from jail for Mother's Day. She's surrounded by an incredible network of organizers and activists. And working with groups such as Black Lives Matter, her idea gained momentum, and it became known as Black Mama's Bailout. Many women are in jail for very small offenses, but they cannot afford to pay the bail or fees, right? So we're talking about these structures that are in place. And in fact, they're in many places, the laws are being set so that people get caught and have to pay these fines. These systems must be changed. 
I heard of one woman who was in jail because she could not afford to pay a $75 fine. That's not who we are. 80% of the women in jail have children. This undermines building healthy communities. And part of white supremacy is for us not to see it, not to pay attention, and not to challenge it. And another part is growing the for-profit prison industry that targets people of color and people of lower socioeconomic status. And in fact, we've seen in the past year those efforts are increasing. For the bailout, people raised money and supported the women with lawyers, personal items, and helped them to get connected to services. And what began as an idea in March, only two months later, became action in 20 cities around the country. I met Mary Hooks and about a dozen activists in her network when Lena Gardner invited me to accompany her one evening to the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. Now, Lena is another amazing young woman to pay attention to. She is the executive director for Black Lives of Unitarian Universalists. The organizing that took place for the bailout is a great model also for intersectional organizing and social justice that addresses the damage of cultural systems that were built on and continue to operate on structures of white supremacy. We must learn to see these structures, and then we have to go to work to dismantle them. Never underestimate what one caring, dedicated person can set in motion. So let's expand our sense of community, and let's continue to work to remove the barriers to inclusion and to bring more justice into the world. This story speaks to the ways that women can and are making a difference. It also illustrates what attorney and author Brian Stevenson told those of us who attended his Ware Lecture at General Assembly last year. Now, some of you may have read his book, Just Mercy, Stevenson told us that there are four things that we can do to help build a more equitable society. And I listened and took notes because I wanted to pass his very important message along. One, we have to get proximate to marginalized communities. It's like Mary was proximate to a community that many of us have been taught to ignore. We need to be with people face-to-face -face and shoulder-to-shoulder. -shoulder. Segregation has done its job in this country, and it's time for us to counter it. Two, we have to change the narrative that sustains inequality. We have to humanize it. And as we listen to the conversation now about drugs being a public health crisis, well, that's a pretty good example because drugs have been talked about in criminalization terms for a long time, and a lot of people have paid the price for it. In fact, I want to mention just recently, very recently, in the past week or so, we're hearing, we're hearing the news of laws that have been passed in California to release people who have been arrested for marijuana possession. 
And that's the only way to start to bring some justice and equity into the system now that money is being put into treatment as public health issues for opioid for the opioid epidemic. And by the way, even with those releases, that won't correct all of the damage that has been done. And Stevenson also talks about the narrative that demonizes children. You know, we have the politics of fear and anger that make us tolerate injustice. And we have a narrative that demonizes children and condemns 13- and 14-year-olds to life in prison. How can we stand by and let that happen? And the narrative of race in this country burdens all of us. We will not be free until we have changed this. And then three, Stevenson goes on to say that we have to stay hopeful. So we need communities like this. This is not work that you do on your own. We need communities like this to keep us inspired, to support us, to help to point us in the direction. And four, we have to do uncomfortable things. We have to do uncomfortable things like talk about white supremacy. So I want to close with an update on the eighth principle. So we're encouraging congregations to adopt the eighth principle locally. It doesn't have to be passed nationally under congregational polity. We can adopt this. Add it to your church's principles. If I were to come into a congregation and see on the back of the order of service the principles and this eighth principle added, I would really want to know who are these people. I'd be very interested. <laughs> so three congregations have already adopted it. The first was the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Restoration in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The second was the First Unitarian Church of Honolulu. Got to get moving, catch up, right? The third was my home congregation, All Souls, in Washington, D.C. It was, it was unanimously supported by our board, and uh, not only did they adopt the eighth principle, but they gave us a line item in the budget to keep the anti-racism training going. That's structural change, and we are accountable where our money goes, right? Where it comes from and where it goes. So there are a lot of other Unitarian Universalists that are moving to have this principle adopted in their churches. And as churches embrace this principle about the beloved community, it will be easier for it to be embraced nationally. So in closing, how strong is our faith? Perhaps it will one day be measured by our ability to build to actualize the beloved community as stated in the eighth principle when we find spiritual wholeness by building a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions from having dismantled racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. May it one day be so.